Well, good morning and welcome to Trinity Church of Lake Nona. My name is Ben Bailey. I'm the pastor here and we are so glad that you are joining us. And as you're seated, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. And as you do that, I want you to think about on the even front of your bulletin, we say our desire for you is that you experience the transforming power of the gospel. We want you to experience it and all of its beauty and glory and transforming power. But what does that mean? Like, how do you experience it? To experience it, what, what are you supposed to experience? And one of the things I want us to see this morning is that one of the things that the gospel is, one of the first things that it is, is it is news. It's news about something that happened, has happened. It's news, a declaration about kind of who you are, who Jesus is, what the world is, what it needs. It's, it's news, but it's not just news in the abstract sense. It's something that transforms the mind. That the first transformation that happens when you experience this transforming power is that your mind is transformed. You know, so much of the battle of life is the battle around the mind. And what we looked at last week and, th- and what we're going to look at this week and next week is a section in chapter 16 where you see Peter. And what Jesus tells Peter is that his core problem is a mindset problem. He says his mind is set on the things of man, not God. His core problem is a mindset problem. So look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And we see here one of the most important things about you is what is your mind set upon? So think about your week this past week. What has your mind been set upon? And one of the challenges for us is that we live in just kind of an age of crises, You can turn on the news and you can watch and each news story will be presented as it's a crisis. And in in many cases, they are. So you can see like the humanitarian crisis that's developing in Eastern Europe. The Ukrainian crisis dealing specifically with the war. The border crisis. The health crisis. An economic crisis. And all these different things are kind of big macro crises that kind of can push people this way. In that way. But as we go through this passage, I wonder if there's not a deeper crisis, a crisis that's not nearly as abstract and out there as pushing people this way and that way, a crisis that every one of us will wrestle with and feel in certain way, and it's the idea of an identity crisis. Like, who am I? You know, one of the things that Jesus is going to touch on in this passage and the next one is he's going to touch on some of the deepest realities and questions that you'll have to answer in life. Like, whose opinion of me or about me really matters? What impressions about me uh, that people have that really matter? What's going to be left of who I am if all the props that I use to prop up my identity are, are taken away? Things like my ambition, my goals, my roles and responsibilities. What's left of me when they're removed? What happens to me if all of my dreams and aspirations are left unfulfilled? Or what happens to me? Who am I if they are fulfilled? 
You know, one of the things we're seeing in this passage and the next, that if the truth that Jesus gives us, if you know it, if it can seep down at the very core of your being, what it can help you is it can help you from the destructive pessimism that just permeates uh, our world that threatens to kind of swallow us all up. It can kind of give you a sense of emotional and personal uh, stability where you can feel, you feel valuable or you know you are valuable no matter how you feel. It can steady your life when it seems like it's going off the rails. One of Peter's primary problems, his mind is set on the things of man. And just as we've got to reorient that so it becomes set on the things of God, the process of becoming more like Christ, being transformed, is a process of progressively thinking more and more like God and less and less like man. So how do we get there? How does that happen? Two things I just want to see this morning. First, notice the problem that Jesus highlights here in these verses. And then in the next section... Uh, Starting in verse 24, notice the path that he lays out. So first he's going to set up the problem, and that's the problem pretty succinctly stated in verse 23. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. Your mind is set on the things of man. And it's, it's alarming how deep that problem runs, even for someone like Peter, how deep that false mindset is. You know, to change the governing ways that we think is one of the most painful and difficult processes you can ever go through. It really requires a a radical conversion. So when we think about mindset, what's made up in, in mindset? You know, Dallas Willard said there's two things that involve your mindset. It's your ideas that you have about the world and then certain images that embody those ideas. So ideas often are just kind of vague general beliefs. They're really fundamental operating principles, or if you've ever heard the term worldview, it's kind of the ideas. It's the way you view the world. They're they're powerful ideas, but often they're not really articulated. They're just kind of assumed. But then that becomes combined with certain images, and those images embody those ideas, and they make them more concrete. They can make them more forceful. Because when you see the images, it provides with it kind of the force of perception where you begin to see and they can be charged with all types of emotional energy. So you think about like a couple years ago, you think, all right, what was the the, the, the dynamic of ideas and images. So there was a certain image that set off just massive social protest. So you had an image of a white police officer with his knee on the back of a, a black man on the ground. That's image. And then that then set off this massive emotional unleashing of these ideas where the image embodies ideas of injustice, ideas of persecution, victimization, all of these things embodied by the image. So you see, sometimes they're incredibly powerful. And then sometimes they're not. So you can think like every commercial you watch has a certain image that it's using to embody a certain idea. And you become more thoughtful as you engage with life. All right, what's this image is embodying a certain idea about who I am, what the world is, what I need, and then how do they fit together? And this actually is an image that was very explosive because Peter has this idea about who Jesus is, who he is, how the kingdom is going to come, what's wrong with the world, what needs to be done to fix it. And then Jesus gives him an image that completely blows that idea out of the water. 
You know, Peter has just been praised because Jesus has told him, you know, blessed are you, Simon, because you are the rock. You have confessed that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the rock. And on you, I'm going to build this church. The gates of hell are not going to overcome it. There's victory. There's stability. We are going to bring restoration and renewal, and you're the foundation. So here Peter is, yeah, like, I'm the guy. I'm the one. Here we're going to do it. It's going to be a certain way. And then instantly Jesus paints a picture of suffering, of crucifixion, of death, and then resurrection. And that image, image of him suffering? No. That image blows up all of his ideas about what's supposed to happen. So these things, they play and they they work in powerful tandem. So I want you to take a moment and just think, all right, what are the most powerful or prominent, potent can't think of another P word. What are the most important to set up our pictures of how we perceive, I will stop, how we perceive the world? You know, what are the images and the ideas that are shaping how we're seeing this? And I think if Jesus is here today, I would say, all right, what, when you say our mind is set on man, help us out. What are some of the images or ideas that are underneath that? I think if he would summarize what our current world means by a mind that's set on man, it will be something like our current contemporary gospel, which is be true to yourself. So that conceptual idea, that idea, is then embodied in dozens and dozens and dozens of images. So be true to yourself. I mean, this is the gold standard of our current cultural cliches, common sense. It's the main theme of nearly every self-help book, all the seminar industries you'll go to. Uh, It is the point of every cliche-ridden senior speech that is about to be inflicted on the world in a couple months. I mean, you all know, every high school and college in the country will nominate their smartest student. This is the smartest student in our school. And every single one of them will stand up and give the same basic, warmed-over variation of this cliche. That, you know, we accomplished it, nobody could hold us down, you can follow your dreams, you just need to be true to yourself. Every one of them. But it's not, I mean, it's not just their fault, it's the same basic, cliched message of every interview you hear with any celebrity. Uh, maybe it's just a certain season of life I'm in because we spend most of our media consumption uh, consuming things like Bluey and Goodnight Goodnight Construction Site. <laughs> but just for once, I would love to pick up a children's book and not have this be the basic message of every single children's book. I mean, that's one of the reasons I actually like Goodnight Goodnight Construction Site because it's, maybe it's in there and I just haven't noticed. <laughs> But this is the basic theme of every kid's book. Every single kid's movie has this basic plot synopsis. You need to be true to yourself. But it's not just kids. I mean, this is the summary of every kind of highbrow literary fiction book that's written right now. I mean, we live in a world, the basic thoughts of man is we are obsessed with ourselves. Self-obsession, self-interest. Self-development, self-image, self-satisfaction, self-love, self-expression, self-confidence, self-help, self-acceptance. And to disagree with this is almost thought unthinkable. Or any of kind of the auxiliary assumptions. You know, follow your heart. you got to think for yourself. Resist all external pressure. Be willing to stand out from the crowd. You know, that kind of mantra, those mantras capture 
the fundamental mindset of, of man in the world we're living in, what it means to live an authentic life. And even on the surface, there's just basic problems with this. I mean, so often that mantra seems to be like it's just an excuse for questionable behavior. It often can be a way of getting around harder virtues like things like patience or basic kindness or faithfulness. Or what do you do when you realize that yourself is actually really quite selfish. You know, do you tell someone who's abusing their spouse, just you be true to yourself. You do you, man. Keep hitting her. What do you say about people who are dishonest with their friends or obnoxiously greedy at work or malicious gossip about their neighbors? He said to say, you be true to yourself. You do you. What do you do when the you needs to stop or the end? And I just wonder if this cliche is just a desperate cultural cry for help where we just generally don't know who we are and don't know what it means to live well. You know, I wonder about this, you know, just the challenges we have for developing a stable sense of self. You know, you kind of think, all right, why is this so challenging now? And I just wonder of the, the dynamics of fragmentation, you know, where, where we have such fragmented life between you know, our work life, our home life, our social leisure life, you know, the context where people often find kind of stability for their self of, you know, career, family, kind of home, location. We have, you know, multiple careers, multiple marriages, multiple homes. You know, in traditional cultures, kind of the most important things about you are really defined for you. And the, the question is just, would you kind of accept it and go with it or try to reject and interesting to note that sociologists coming up with a term they call for our age, they call it the churning, that we live in a constant churning. And this is one of the things we've talked about. I've, you know, you've all felt there's just like this ambient anxiety, even before COVID, even before 2020, there's ambient anxiety. They call it the churning, which is this gnawing uncertainty and kind of this gnawing restlessness where life just seems to be fragmented. Relationships are temporary and they're loose. And one of the things they say, that churning can go along fine until crisis hits. And then when crisis hits, you have this great kind of identity crisis. You have this moment like, who am I really? You know, it's kind of interesting to look kind of historically, you know, or historically, I mean, you go back to like the 50s and you kind of think about like what were the common like movies, the kids, the things that were cool. And, you know, uh, like in the 50s, it was kind of acknowledged that you would have one basic time in your life where you had an identity crisis. It was basically sometime when you were a teenager and you would recognize that you were kind of uh, in this world that your parents or your clan or your group had kind of structured for you. And your challenge, would would you go along with it? Would you recognize it? Or would you somehow kind of revise it or just reject it? Would you be the rebel and reject it? But it was thought mostly that once you kind of decided that in your teenage years, you would be set on a trajectory in life that you would kind of then follow for the rest of your life. So we kind of then those idea, when you're a teenager, you'll have a certain sense of identity crisis, but then you'll get through it, get over it, and get on with it. And then it was about the 70s, a new kind of concept started coming uh, in vogue as the idea of a midlife crisis. 
And the midlife crisis it was, it was mostly men, and it would also kind of be seen, you know, start having an affair, buy a Harley Davidson, or, you know, a red convertible. The idea is like, all right, you get to your midlife. That's why 40 began, became this dark birthday where you become over the hill. So now half of your life is over and you're looking back and all of the dreams and the hopes and the aspirations you had, you're coming to the reality you might not fulfill them. So it creates this midlife crisis. But now what's interesting is there begins to be uh, what sociologists call the churn. What they mean is we now live in an age of discontent where that happens all the time. You know, back when I was a kid, 20 years ago when I entered my 20s, it was the first time they'd started using the term called the quarter-life crisis. For people in their 20s, this is quarter-life where you go into a crisis. Recently, there was an interesting book by Casey Edwards called 30-something and over it. And she dubbed the term called thrisis. Thry, T-H-R-I, sis, thrisis. And she said, what's the thrisis? The thrisis is when you enter into your 30s and you realize you've been climbing up this ladder only to discover the ladder's propped up against the wrong wall. So you have a thrisis. And then I read this week, first time I had heard this, and I'm totally going to butcher this pronunciation, but cuspiety, Cuspiety, one that sociologists said now, which is cusp, it's, it's anxiety, iety, that happens anytime you're on the cusp of a new scenario or situation. So it's the anxiety you feel every decade birthday, so 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. And it's the idea you experience every time you're entering into some type of new situation, cusp, iety. And of course, the digital age just pours fuel on this because we have the constant challenge of continually defining and constructing ourselves. But notice what happens here in Peter. Our whole world says you have to take the lead. You have to initiate. You have to go. You, you do you. But notice what happens when Peter starts to do Peter. It goes badly for him at the very beginning. And for Peter, this is one of those beautiful, clarifying moments where you come to a crisis where you say, all right, who is the real me? Like, who's the real Peter? The triumphant one who gets the answer right and gets praised by the teacher? Or the one who gets the answer completely and totally wrong? Is the real Peter the rock? Or is the real Peter the stumbling block? Which one is the real Peter? And if he's just going to do Peter, which one should he cultivate? You know, what do you do? And you know, sometimes that moment, that crisis moment can happen... You know, it can happen when you maybe lose your job. It can happen when you lose your parents or lose a spouse. It can happen when you retire. But it also can happen just when you feel the weight of living a disconnect between an image you've crafted and the real one. You know, I read this week about a scholar, an Australian biblical theologian that I've admired from afar and appreciate uh, his work. And there's several books he's written where I think, man... I would give anything to be able to write like that. And he was telling the story about years ago, uh, he had been married, come to marry. He, uh, his, his wife left him. His marriage imploded after 13 years. And sitting in his car, he turned the rearview mirror as he was about to drive away from his house after his whole life had just imploded on him. And he looked at himself in the mirror and didn't recognize who he saw. So you had these moments where you look at yourself like, who is that? Who, who's the real me? It can happen when you feel deflated by your 
assumption that your life just isn't going the way you hoped it would. It can happen when you feel diminished by the constant consuming of, of giving of yourself to the needs of maybe young children or elderly parents. It can happen when you just feel adrift. You have this moment. And that's what Peter had right here. And it doesn't often have to happen dramatically. In fact, some of the most, kind of the starkest realizations are when these type of who am I really moments happen in the course of just mundane life. Like if you experience a traumatic loss or grief, it's understandable to have this. But what happens when what you've experienced is you just said something you shouldn't have? This is kind of the beauty and the brilliance of Jane Austen's Emma. The way she sets up Emma, which is probably her masterpiece, because it's so subtle, the way she sets up Emma and her descent. And don't know the story, you know, Emma is this young, beautiful young lady in this town, and she just kind of goes through the world with this effortless sense of superiority. I mean, she just assumes that she's the most beautiful, the most talented, the most accomplished around her. And there's this kind of this bored disdain for the ordinary people around her. And at her darkest moment, Jane, just beautiful because her darkest moment comes as she ascends the heights of Box Hill. And it's actually the farthest Emma's ever actually been away from home and sees the highest vista. And what does she see? She gets a glimpse of who she really is. There's this moment where she's kind of fueled, her vanity is fueled by uh, the flirtatious Frank Churchill, who's lively, good-looking, little bit of a bad boy. Now, he's not really from there. His, her governess is his stepmother, but he's been away, so he's an outsider. She gets carried away with his flirting and her effortless sense of superiority, and she was just joking, but in her joking, she savagely mocks Mrs. Bates, who's a widow, who needs, deserves pity, who'd had her whole life taken from her by tragedy and death and lived on the generosity of those around her. And Emma mocks her, makes fun of her. And then in that moment, what's revealed to her is who she really is. And her good friend, Mr. Knightley, badly done, Emma, badly done. Because it's revealing and in that moment, she descends because that's the turning point for her. Because she says, just in that sarcastic jab, it revealed to her the real Emma. You know, Knightley is a good friend. He doesn't say, well, it's a, you were just joking. You do you, girl. You know, it reveals. So what do you do when that real you is revealed? Now look in verse 24, because what Jesus gives, and what we want to spend this week and next week time looking at, Jesus actually gives you the path to how you can find your true self. How you can uh, craft and construct a stable identity. How you can develop uh, identity security. Notice what Jesus says in verse 24. Then he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." So this is Jesus' path. Do you want to uh, find your true self? Then this is how you find it. 
You have to discover not the true self in essence, but the new self. You have to be made new. And this is the path. You know, this little summary in 24, 25, 26, it's almost like a summary, a distillation of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to uh, boil down all of the teaching and saying, if you're going to follow me, this is the road you have to follow. Notice I love how verse 21 opens, if anyone, so not just talking to Peter anymore, not just talking to the 12 disciples, this is if anyone, this is an open call, would follow me. So you have to return to your rightful place. Discipleship is following Jesus. The rightful place is Jesus leading and us, them, following. And in every age, in every stage, we have to figure out what does faithful following of Jesus right now, in this stage, in this situation, at this work, around these people, what does it look like right now? And Jesus said, anyone is going to follow me. And then notice the three-step path they have to walk down. They have to deny themselves, take up their cross, and then follow. Deny, take up, follow. You know, he says you have to deny yourself. What's the first thing that comes into your mind? Don't say it out loud, rhetorical. What's the first thing that comes into your mind when you think I need to deny myself? Or even what categories? You know, when he's talking about self-denial, what do you think of? You know, this is the season of Lent, and uh, historically, during the 40 days of Lent leading up to Easter, uh, Christians have always fasted, so there's been a, a fasting practice. And then over the you know, last hundred you know, years, as kind of the church calendar has fallen out of uh, use and favor, uh, many Christians will, will fast, but from something else. They'll, they'll give up something for Lent. So if you ever had that question, you know, what are you giving up for Lent? And uh, it's interesting, every year Bible Gateway does a Twitter poll where they ask people to, to list or tell what's, what they're giving up for Lent. And so I have here the top 25 responses for what people are giving up for Lent. Now you have to, all right, this is a, so the, the, there was about 90,000 response, and these are people who are on Twitter and then follow Bible Gateway. So that's the demographic. All right, so what does anybody want to guess might be uh, what's the top 25 things people are giving up for Lent? Chocolate. Chocolate. And I feel so bad for our Belgian friends. I mean, what is wrong with chocolate? It's one of God's good gifts to this world. Chocolate is number two. Chocolate, number two. Anybody else? What else? Twitter. Twitter. Yes, Twitter. Now, I don't know quite now because Twitter was number three. So people on the Twitter poll, number three, were giving up Twitter. And then seven was social media. I don't know. It's just social media in general. Facebook was 19 and Instagram was 24. So obviously people on Instagram just aren't on Twitter. All right, what else do you think might be on there? Alcohol, yes. Alcohol was number five. Not to be outdone, soda was number six. Coffee, I don't understand that either. Yes, why? why? Uh, do you just want to hate your life? Coffee was, was 14. All right, some of the other ones, so chocolate, Twitter. Nobody's guessed number one, I'm surprised. Sugar, sugar was on there. Uh, sugar was number four. Oh, no, sorry, eight. Swearing. Swearing was number four. Swearing is number four. Sugar is number eight. Mixed up those two words. TV, TV didn't make it. Yeah, screen time's on there. Number one, school. <laughs> and I 
I just look, you kids, you kids are so crafty. You're just brilliant. You know, I look at like Greta Thornburg and her, you know, you know, she has boycotted school until global warming is addressed. I think that's just brilliant. Why didn't I think of that when I was in 10th grade? School was the number one we're giving up for Lent. Not to be outdone, homework was number 10. And then somebody just said for Lent, they're giving up. They just said you. That was number 17. We're just giving up you. Uh, pizza made the list. Starbucks made the list. Uh, I thought number 23 on the list is we're giving up, giving up things. <laughs> kind of creative. And then religion uh, was number 25. Now, we think of denying ourselves. We think, all right, I need a little less chocolate. Need less fast food, less sugar, less chips, less junk food. So is that what Jesus means by denying yourself? You know, think about the context here. The context here is when he says deny yourself, what he's actually hitting Peter with is Peter is, is not just Peter needs to give up his chocolate. It's Peter has to give up Peter as Lord of Peter's life. Peter has to submit to the one he's going to follow and make a commitment that I will follow him and do whatever he says. I will listen to his word, and his word says his kingdom comes by suffering, sorrow, crucifixion, and resurrection. I will follow that. I will crucify my mindset on the way this is supposed to work and follow him. That's what it means to deny yourself. It doesn't mean to express yourself, exalt yourself, promote yourself, champion yourself, even love yourself or be true to yourself. It's deny you know, there are ideas, there are images, there are impulses, there's drives in you that if you don't deny and they die, they will lead to your destruction. There's this beautiful wordplay all throughout here between the same word for life and soul, the same word. Suke, it's where we get psychic, psychological, uh, psycho. And so you can read this whole thing. Is, is, is it life or is it soul? You gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. Gain the whole world, forfeit your, your life. Deny yourself. Then notice, take up your cross. So this is to believe. This is to will, willingly follow him down the path of death. You have to believe that the gospel is more powerful than death. It's more real than death. Take up the cross. And this is a public act. This is not a private act. It's not, you know, I'm going to give up something that nobody ever sees. This is a public bearing of the cross. And then notice, you follow me. You know, this is a call to loyalty. You follow me. But, you know, here are the beautiful two words in verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake... It's for me, the personal presence of Jesus. It's the following me. It's I'm sticking with you no matter what, because I believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I believe you have the words of life. I believe that whoever believes in you will never taste death. So I'm going to stick with you, even if I don't understand it and can't explain it. I'm here with you. I'm following you. And in this context, it means you got to take his teaching seriously. In a very real sense, this passage is what it truly means to pro, be pro-life. You're pro-life. You deny yours so you can have it and gain it. You know, here Peter is wrong. He originally is wrong about the work of Christ and the mission of the church and his way of seeing the world. You know, I was thinking about this passage, what Martin Luther, how he defines the pure in heart in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. 
for they will see God. And he says, the pure in heart are those who are watching and pondering what God says, and then they're replacing it with their own ideas about what they say. So it means to be pure in heart. It means knowing and preaching and teaching and learning and listening to what he actually says. So here you have this first great confession. This is who Jesus is. Then this commitment that no matter what, I am following you. And you realize that it's actually in that commitment. The only way you construct an identity, it comes through the commitments you make. That What are you committed to? The people, the places, the things that you're committed to. And here he's saying, if you want to find your life, you are committed to following me. So what do you do? How can you help find this? You're part of our commitments is a commitment to follow him and listen to him. And then what's going to bring about that transformation? I mean, we need the things we need. We need the word of God to hear it. We need the spirit of God to enlighten it. And we need the people of God to help, uh, help teach it to us, to learn from one another. If we really want to experience that transformation, that's what we need. Word of God, spirit of God, people of God. And then you have to actively begin to take your whole thought life captive and bring it under submission to the Lordship of Christ. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to help us to do that. So Lord, we thank you for the gift of life and the gift of wisdom and the gift of truth. And we ask that you help us, help us to uh, be aware of the worldly way that we think. And then we ask that through your word and your spirit and your people that you would transform that way of thinking into a way of thinking that is true and brings life and that you would empower us by your spirit to live those things out. We pray that you help us. Pray that you help all of us to, uh, if anyone here in this room comes in and they're fully aware of the sense of identity angst and crisis where they're wrestling, who am I? Pray that they would turn to your word and that your spirit uh, would turn them to your word and they would hear the call that you are, uh, they are your, your sons, your daughters. Pray that we would just, uh, we would know the privilege of being drawn into by your son, by faith and repentance into your family and to be adopted as sons and daughters and help us to live out that glorious and beautiful identity. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now we pray that all of us who are near, all who are far, all who are safe, and then all those who are not safe and insecure, may we all know the love of our dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior. May we know it now, this week, forever, and always. Amen. Go in peace.